part of what we've sung already, which is laying my life before you today. And uh, of course, uh, the, the timeless words of the psalmists help us oftentimes transcend the centuries and the vast differences in personal experiences and personal background to this wonderfully rich realization. The, our Heavenly Father's love and grace and presence is here for you now. It's immediate. It's in the now. Let us read together uh, in unison Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. As a reprise on the third through fifth verses, let's see, read the, those three again with an accent on that personal pronoun, my, as we realize and carry into our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday this week, I'm coming to you, Lord, knowing that these promises are real for me. Let's do that part here together, three through five. Accent on my rock, for you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. Again, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Could you give him praise as we place these Bibles down and just lift a spontaneous gift of praise to the Lord. He's good. His mercy endures forever. He guides us. He promises to be with you in those times of uncertainty. And he surrounds us above all with his unfathomable love. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Into your hands we commit our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. And then before you're seated, please reach around, just welcome a couple of people near you. We especially appreciate our guests for the first or second time. So delighted to meet each of you, and thank you for being a part of this worship gathering together. Our children for explorers and pathfinders can go on to their time together now. To truly receive from the Lord and uh, today, I invite you to turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I would think of this as receiving from the Lord maybe in a little different way. We're kind of in between series now from our, our snapshots in Colossians series throughout most of the summer, and then our series on transformational grace from the potter's house in Jeremiah and the internal New Testament fulfillment of that in Romans 8 for those weeks of September and October. And last week I shared with you a kind of a simple one-time standalone message about families, the fact that all of us have unique issues in our families. No families, no two families are alike. And, and they all, we all have some, let us say, angular, maybe jagged edges in our families. And that is part of God's wonderful design for teaching us patience and love and grace and the fruit of the Spirit. And so we talked about in 1 Thessalonians 3 last week some overall principles of flourishing families, the, the, the perspective that God's Word and grace can give us. And today, I want to turn a corner to a very unique individual in the Bible. And it is one of those things that I find intriguing in that sometimes in Scripture we're given by the Lord uh, not only things that are fully fleshed out for us, let's say like the life of Joseph in the Old Testament would be a great example of that, with great vast amounts of detail, and then other times we're given something that uh, we might think of as, uh, as a partial or even a very minimal uh, view of something that we can not only learn from, but contains within it, I believe, the seed 
of a very needy principle, a timely principle for living our lives as followers of Jesus day by day and in congregational life being a part of what it means to strengthen the saints and to reach out to our needy world in the name of Jesus. So in your Bible, if you would find that at, um, at Luke chapter 1, most everyone would immediately recognize that, um, that in these opening verses in Luke chapter 1, that we meet a person who is not explained to us, but whose identity is a reminder to us that all of us have a place, an opportunity in life to bring the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to other people. And as a part of that calling and that shared understanding in our lives, we can also know that whenever you talk about Jesus, whenever you share about God's love with someone else, you really never know you can never begin to guess the rippling effects of that one-on-one -on -one conversation. I think we have a model of that in this person identified in Scripture as Theophilus. So if in the first verses of the Gospel of Luke, we hear in Luke's beginning words of the Gospel, the reason that he took the pen in hand and worked so assiduously to gather all of the facts and details and narratives and understandings of those who had seen the Lord Jesus face to face, both in his earthly ministry, in the night in which he was betrayed, and after his glorious resurrection. And so Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things which have been fulfilled among us. Many, he says, have undertaken to begin to try to describe. Now, Luke is, of course, writing here um, within about 22 years to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he explains in the second verse of Luke 1 that, that just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So already in a 25-year time period from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus until Luke is traveling with Paul in writing, he knows that many people have sought, they've certainly mined their memories. Many have, in a day when there was no digital photography like we have now, can you imagine how much if you had been in some of those crowds, let's say on the hillside of Galilee, where the Lord Jesus had taken bread and fish and multiplied it and fed the multitudes, wouldn't you be always wanting to tell your children and your grandchildren about it? Wouldn't you always be talking about that mighty miracle? Maybe you were there when, uh, when a leper had, had stopped and screamed on the side of the road as the Lord Jesus passed by in a great crowd and heard the cry of a leper saying, Lord, you can make me clean if you will. And knowing they were there when they saw Jesus turn and say, I will be clean. Go show yourself to the priest and be free. And countless other mighty miracles that occurred. Imagine the stories that Martha and Mary and Lazarus would tell who had experienced Lazarus being raised from the dead. Yes, back to an earthly life, a mortal life, unlike our Lord, raised to immortality gloriously and victoriously over all hell, death, and the grave. Lazarus was going to die again. He was raised to mortality. And yet, can you imagine what it would it be like to sit down and talk to Lazarus after having come out of that tomb and having those grave clothes peeled off around him? 
And story after story after story and experience after experience after experience would have been a, a fascinating part of what this Gentile historian physician Luke would begin to discover having joined the apostolic band in roughly the year 50 or 51 AD. So here we have Luke's first recording of his effort at pulling together all that would be needed to compile this vital document and to do it in such a way that its elegance and its excellence would reach millions upon millions of people's lives. Now, he starts with one individual in mind. And this is where we come to that third and fourth verse of Luke 1. With this in mind, Luke says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is a picture of a principle that is valuable in all of our lives, and I think of this individual in shorthand as Theo. Excuse me for doing that. I do that with people like St. Augustine. I just call him Brother Augie. You know, that's just my way. And I want to think a little bit about this guy that we can nickname Theo. Because the connection between Luke and Theophilus is a great illustration, really a timeless example, of, of a great principle that, that can help all of us realize the vitality of the local church, the excitement of serving God in our generation, the joy that the good news of Jesus Christ in our hands is always evergreen good, no matter how much bad news is around us in this culture. And that simple principle has been summarized in this memorable phrase, each one, reach one, and teach one. Say it with me. Each one, reach one, and teach one. Now, we know that Luke practiced this spontaneously. It didn't, probably didn't even have to think about that. But we then become very curious, of course, of what is this that the Gospel of Luke begins with this unusual introduction, a person's name who occurs in the fourth verse of this magnificent manuscript and then vanishes for the rest of the entire 24 chapters. Do you realize, in fact, if you take all of the writings of Luke, the Luke and Acts sequel together, that in, in terms of sheer content, they comprise 27.5% of the entire New Testament. Though the Apostle Paul wrote more epistles, more individual writings, 13 epistles out of 27, yet the entire, the, the, the body of content uh, is more with that combination of Luke and Acts. So these, these two books, Luke and Acts, then obviously are of profound significance for all of our lives. And I think that to maybe get a handle on this, uh, this guy named Theo, what can we learn, what could we derive, what could we imply for our lives from this guy that we're calling today Theo? Well, let's think about Theo first in light of a few fast facts. First of all, his name uh, occurs twice in Scripture. So let's take the moment to turn to the other place, and that's in the opening verses of the book of Acts, obviously. So let's turn to that first chapter of Acts as well, and just keep your place there in Luke. Let's go over to Acts chapter 1 and, and think about this second of the two references in Scripture to Theo or Theophilus. And we, hear, we see here clearly the uh, unmistakable intentionality of the writer that having given to what is most likely the first recipients of the Gospel of Luke may very well have been in the, in the thriving co congregations of saints in Antioch where most likely Luke was from. 
and yet very rapidly uh, copies and, uh, and oral repeating of so much of what is in that magnificent gospel would be shared. And now in the first chapter of the book of Acts, of course, he references and makes that connection to this, uh, to this wonderful recounting of the dynamic power of our Lord's risen glory and all that it means for us in the, with the, the light beaming across the landscape of his miracles, his matchless teachings, the wonderful parables, the story of the Good Samaritan, all of the wonderful things that are a part of the Gospel of Luke. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And here we find his name, good old Theo, in the very first verse. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. What a wonderful way to start the book, the, the corpus of truth, the unrolling of the scroll of the first 35 years of the church's existence after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Luke says you can summarize the first body of work, the Gospel of Luke, as that which Jesus began to do and to teach. And would you speak out the word began with me? Began. So that means, what does that mean about you and me? That means you and I are in a continuation of that which Jesus began to do and to teach, that his finished work on the cross that can never be added to and his accomplished conquest over sin, death, hell, and the grave for us launches us by the power of the Holy Spirit into an ongoing shared experience in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, then Luke says that all of these things were the beginning until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so first of all, these two mentions of, of Theophilus um, seem so sparse that we might kind of wonder, well, what in the world could you even imagine about this guy, Theo? Well, of course, uh, students of history and biblical scholars have looked at it in a variety of different ways. One of the things that is so clear, that's unmistakable, is that this man, whoever he was, was singled out to be the recipient, think of it, to be the recipient of a timeless treasure. The documents, the priceless documents in which for all time and eternity, the Holy Spirit superintending the writing of Scripture through human instruments would place in the hands of this guy, Theo, of all people, the first copies of these wonderful documents. When I've been at, uh, years ago, once uh, stopping in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., I, I, I noted, in fact, got out a piece of paper and scribbled down some things that struck me about how the, uh, the archives there described uh, how carefully the original documents of of the American experiment in our republic were, were preserved and, and what great care and at what great cost those original documents are held there uh, hermetically sealed and, and kept uh, and under, under guard and all, all the value that of course we know inherently are in all of those documents. But as I was writing that down that day on the back of an envelope or whatever it was, I was thinking to myself, this is moving because of the price paid, as we prayed earlier, for those who paid the price for the preservation of this republic, but then, then raise that exponentially to the thousandth power when you think of the document of the writing of the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, infinitely more precious and valuable. And what strikes me is that these documents in the sovereign plan of God we're being directed first as an addressee to a person whose name only occurs twice in the Bible and about whom we are not told anything else in Scripture itself. So if we speculate a little bit and just know that it's not in the Bible, but 
people obviously speculate out of curiosity, there are about four different views of who Theophilus could be. Two of them I don't think are even worth mentioning, but the two most likely views are that he was a wealthy, very wealthy and successful benefactor who had become a follower of the Lord Jesus. It's very likely it could have been in Syrian Antioch, but even that's not certain. But we can might assume that. And, and if he was in the community that was ra- one of the rapidly growing Christian communities that we see reflected in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts and how it really became a, a sending center for the thriving movement of the missionaries that were going out to bring the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, then Theophilus could have been one of those with the means, the financial means, to be able to help to underwrite some of the the travel and the work of some of the missionary groups. Another view is that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman government official and that uh, as a part of the way that the Word of God had, had so reached into every strata of society, we know that there were those from the 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 time of the Roman centurion who saw Jesus dying on the cross and lifted up his eyes to heaven in the midst of that cataclysmic natural phenomena of, of the darkness that covered the earth and the cry of our Savior, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, oh, I commit unto you my my spirit after saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that centurion who said, truly, this man was the Son of God. We know there was clearly a moving of the Holy Spirit among Roman officials. By the way, Paul mentions this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, when he says, he says, you know, it's difficult to be an apostle in prison, obviously. It's not fun to be a missionary with these chains wrapped around me at times and at other times under house arrest, but still confined without the freedom of mobility that I want to go wherever I choose to go. But Paul says in Philippians 1.12, one of the reasons he kept that note of joy and rejoicing throughout that epistle of the Philippians is that I have learned that God has taken even these chains, even these chains, even these shackles that God has taken and he's used it for his good purpose such that even the staff in in the palace of the emperor have been hearing about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Paul in Philippians 1.12 is basically saying, because of my chains, because I've been confined here, oh, it's turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And in that, I rejoice. So clearly, the good news was reaching into that strata of many of the highest of the um, echelon of the Roman Empire. And so that brings us to the focus of this text in in Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, that I just think is such a wonderful way to think about how God uses human instruments for the accomplishing of his purpose. And first of all, we see from this, if you go back into Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we're going to focus on that once again because these four verses are like the rudder in a great ocean liner. You can't see the rudder, and most of the time, obscure characters like Theo are obviously out of view. And yet, the purpose of his writing to this individual Theophilus to further instruct him who appears to have been a relatively new believer and was learning about the things of God and was hungry for more. You want to ask as you think about that, is that true of us? Is that true of this church? Is that true of our hearts? Are we, whatever we've learned about Jesus, are we hungry for more? Because the reality is, the more we encounter the the glory of God and the gospel, the more our hearts yearn to open that next door. 
to do that next study, to move further into that understanding. And of course, in Luke's case, what we have in his example is one who not only was seeking these things out for his own spiritual growth, obviously, but because he saw men like Theophilus, let's assume he's a wealthy benefactor in Antioch, or he's a high-ranking government Roman official, and he's now taking those tentative first steps of following the Lord Jesus. He's one who would come in among a diverse group of people who are gathering on the morning of the Lord's day. And he, if he is in the, in the uh, service of the government, he's laying aside his political instruments. He's laying aside any military uh, accoutrements. And he's joining with the common people in worshiping the risen king. And so Luke explains his reasoning to write an orderly account for you why that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, what Luke is giving us is exactly what he gave to Theophilus, and that is the certainty, the resources that you need in order to be absolutely certain about your walk with Christ. And what is striking about this section is how much that certainty, how valuable that certainty was for Luke's purposes in writing, that it fulfills what I think is clearly stated to us in 1 Peter 3.15 when the Apostle Peter tells every one of us, and it's applicable in this place today, to set apart with reverence our Lord Jesus as Lord of your heart and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who might ask you the reason for the hope that is within you. What Luke is expressing in Luke 1, 3, and 4 is the exact equipment that Simon Peter is talking about. Be ready, that is, and what's really striking about that when you think about his goal of this certainty is that this task of the writing of this great account of the fullness of the life of the Lord Jesus from even the angel's announcement to Mary that she was going to be the chosen mother, the virgin mother, of the incarnate Messiah, all the way to those final moments in resurrection glory when Jesus dispenses the disciples into the world, and that everything there, all of that content, is a part of the granite rock of faith-empowering foundation in your life. What is really striking is Luke is modeling for us that the narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, all of it matters. And in fact, it models the fact that there's no real conflict between true faith and real reason. Because the reason of a heart that is enlightened by the truth of the facts of Christ is a sharpened mind a sharper mind, a brighter intellect, because this wonderful news God has given is foundational for other areas of life in which we need to learn. In other words, in the Gospel of Luke, we get a glimpse at many of the priorities of God, and not only in kind of an academic or dry classroom way, but as the distinctives of Luke show us, God chose to bring us these things we need to know, this granite rock of our faith foundation, and he does it uh, in such a wondrous way with Luke's writing through the stories, the realities, the on the ground, in the living room, in the kitchen, in the office, in the marketplace 
The real relationships of life, which so many of our Lord's parables and stories delve into, as well as the wonderful infancy narratives that we'll be looking at during the coming Advent season. So when you think about this, it's striking that this first four verses of Luke are not just kind of a throwaway intro, but oh, they're like the rudder on a great ocean liner that's carrying us in the direction of a thriving faith. Think of some of these distinctives in Luke. Uh, It's only a partial list, of course, but some of the things that stand out as notable nuances in the Gospel of comparison with the other three Gospel writers is very detailed and vivid character sketches. Uh, a, a great accent on children, more so than, than in some of the comparative accounts. Uh, 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 the bringing to light of the place that children and even their growing up, even our Lord as a child and John the Baptist as a child and, and the, the significance of the children coming to the Lord Jesus in Luke 18. There is an accent on women and women's uniqueness and women's value and women's roles in Luke that isn't given in some kind of a uh, in, in some kind of a of a didactic or instructive way, but in an illustrative way. Uh, one of many examples is the opening verses of the eighth chapter of Luke, where we read in in the journeys of the Lord Jesus bringing the life-giving power of God to the communities around the Sea of Galilee, that there was a cluster of of women who out of their own means and with their own time and their own energy and their own talent, out of their love for the Lord, were were going wherever Jesus and his band of disciples needed assistance and they were just quietly slipping in and doing things that helped to ease their burden and lift their load and make the journey successful. Without fanfare, without calling attention to themselves or seeking uh, any kind of applause. And that along with many other quiet examples of the heart of women and their love for him and the way that God used them was another element of the distinctives of Luke's emphasis. Though, of course, prayer is in every book of the Bible. There's an accent in Luke on prayer of many different types. Praises comes bursting through in very unique and spontaneous, episodic ways. Even from an aging priest named Zechariah who is left without the ability to speak for almost nine months while the waiting for the birth of John the Baptist comes. And then in those last verses of Luke 1, his tongue is loosed and this old priest who probably knew nothing but tradition and routine and ritual burst out in a spontaneous song of praise unto the Lord. And then I just couldn't uh, contain myself as I thought about this to take you quickly here to the end of the Gospel of Luke and have us read this together. Here's the closing two verses of the Gospel of Luke and it's resounding with a joyous praise for who He is, for the glory of our King. Why don't you read it aloud with me? Let's do this together. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This is the conclusion of this story of Jesus that Luke begins with his quill upon the, upon the parchment saying to Theophilus, Hey, Theo! Let me tell you more about why you now believe in this loving, risen, victorious king. And from that point on, Theo becomes the recipient, the first recipient of the, of the priceless document that is literally meant for millions. And yet it begins in a one-on-one contact between Luke and Theo, the wealthy guy, the Roman official, the, 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 the merchant, the explorer. We, we, we don't know. Historians and Bible scholars are just guessing, putting together little fragments. But the beauty of not knowing is that our uncertainty about who Theo was 
is a dramatic contrast to our absolute certainty about the granite rock of faith foundation that Luke was putting in Theo's life. Now, we can think about it like that and realize that, of course, we can literally ask, why was there such joy? And Theo might ask this, why was there such joy? Is this joy for real? And somebody could be here today and they could be asking, is this joy, this joy, this praise, this this exuberance to talk about our risen Lord Jesus? Is it real? How can it be sustained? Why? Why? And of course, Luke not only gives us all the reasons through 24 chapters, but as we saw in Acts, he opens that sequel by saying, I wrote these things to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. Why? Because now the promise is to you in Acts 1.8 that you can receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In other words, this one-on-one, this each-one-reach-one-and-teach-one principle means, friend, whenever you and I talk about the Lord, talk about Christ, put the Word of God in some form, a tract, a book, a, a booklet, a tape, a CD, an, an MP4 in, a, in an email attached to somebody to share something wonderful with them about Christ. In our digital world, it could be a thousand and one different ways that we could do this. And yet to be mindful that all of us in some way have something vital in common with Luke. In spite of his enormous talents, all of us have talents and God sees those talents and he draws those talents out of us and often, sometimes when we least expect it, he brings somebody into our path that can be a Theo in our lives. Are there any Theos in your world? Are there any Theophiluses in your life? There are. You may not have always recognized them, but God is sending us Theos. Well, in the case of Luke, one of the things that I I think is particularly striking here as we close this is to think about some of the some of the unique talents that were brought to bear. And I I don't want to leave this paragraph, if your Bible is still open in that third and fourth verse, I don't want to leave this paragraph of Luke 1, 3 to 4 without um, highlighting something that was not only vital for Theo to know, (laughs) but it's really vital for 21st century people living in a very difficult and perilous time as we are in this place and in our culture, with all the controversies that swirl around, how vital it is that we are anchored in the same certainties that Theo was able to receive. And and what is notable here is that if you take this great body of work, all of Luke and all of Acts, and as I said, it covers such a vast expanse of of fact and, and, and reality and insight into people, And there are those in any generation who will doubt and wonder, well, are these things to be believed? And there have always been attacks on the Bible. In every generation, there have been attacks on different parts of the Bible by different people seeking to undermine the inerrancy of Scripture and undermine faith in the in the what is most vital, the absolute conquest of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over hell, death, and the grave, and his reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And never have those attacks been more vociferous than in our time. Even sadly, within the canopy of of claimed or professed Christianity, there are even those who attack the inerrancy and the absolute veracity and perspicacity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. And there are many ways to explain and be able to respond to that, but I think this little paragraph, this tiny paragraph, gives us one really vital golden nugget, and that is that Luke had written these things, and for over 1,800 years, so much of what Luke gave us in terms of details in the book of Luke and the book of Acts could not be verified 
in any particular way by historians. And so many things accepted by faith and many things uh, left unverified. And there were those in the 19th century who sought to attack the foundations of the faith by going after tiny little pieces of Luke's writing to question certain, um, certain factual assertions. And one of the interesting witnesses to the absolute success of Luke's endeavor for Theophilus was a British atheist in the 19th century by the name of Sir William Ramsay, who, among a community of complete, total antagonists to the gospel in his field of, of study and research, set himself out as a Middle East expert to study and examine all the places that were written about in these historical documents. And it's a very long story, but the result of Ramsay's work was a monumental book that is available still today in many, many multiplied thousands and thousands of reprints, and that is St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen by Sir William Ramsay. And as a result of his lifetime of study, he made many conclusions about what an awesome gift we have been given in the Gospel of Luke, and of course, as you might expect, he himself came wholeheartedly and lovingly to the Lord Jesus and was born again and became a follower of Christ and came to walk with God. And in Sir William Ramsey's work, he concluded after all of his research that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, his, pro, his prose is proven to be of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature. In short, Luke's writing is unsurpassed in terms of its trustworthiness. And part of the reason that Luke's paragraph is so successful, how he set out to document and to certify and to verify all of the things, Theo, that you've been hearing about, about Christ. No, he didn't leave it to hearsay. He traveled the Roman Empire, vast travels with the Apostle Paul and found himself, because of his unique skill as a historian and his sharp insight as a medical professional, as a physician, Luke brings to these priceless documents nuance and detail that helps us understand not only what the Lord Jesus did, but in his writer's odyssey across, across the landscape of travel by foot and by beast of burden, but also across the Mediterranean Sea. He suffered the shipwreck with the Apostle Paul. He ends up in Rome under house arrest with the Apostle Paul, where the book of Acts, by the way, concludes in that 28th chapter. And Luke, in all of these endeavors, does something that becomes a priceless gift to the body of Christ today. Another of many reasons why we can, should slowly and, and just soaking in like fresh rain on the dry ground the wonderful 24 chapters of the Gospel of Luke in that he explains not only what he's gathered by hearsay, but by interviewing living eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus, both in his earthly ministry and in his death and in his resurrection and in the days of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is, Luke the physician the historian draws together. One of many examples is this place in Acts 21.16 where, where Luke, because of the appeal of the Apostle Paul, having been falsely accused by the Jews in Jerusalem and being falsely arrested, Paul appealing with his Roman citizenship, begins an odyssey that takes him first to Caesarea by the sea for almost two years in a Roman-controlled smaller jail facility where Luke could come and go and be with him. And Luke is then housed at that same time in the home of another one-time named person in the Bible, Manasin. But what we know about Manasin 
is significant, though he's only mentioned once. That is, he's an early disciple who was there with all of the disciples in that formative time. And what we see are glimpses in scenarios and cameos of where Luke drew with interviews those who had been with Jesus. Though it can't be verified with any certainty, there is a great probability that Luke even interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so what we find in understanding the gift of this book is concluding with his wonderful insight on, into the sources. Now, any good reporter knows, sadly, lots of reporters in our culture today have left this behind, but any good reporter knows that you need to be sure about your sources and you need to verify your sources. And Luke does exactly that in his, this, these concluding statements where he says, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have delivered these things to us. These eyewitnesses, Paul talks about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These eyewitnesses were vital in every aspect of what Luke writes. Paul himself, when he is struck down by meeting the Lord Jesus in his risen glory on the Damascus road, testifies, I became an eyewitness, an eyewitness, so to speak, after the fact. And the Lord Jesus revealed himself by many infallible proofs to the eyewitnesses who were with him and over 500 brethren who were still alive at the time of Paul's writing. And then Paul says, and then he made himself known to me. Like Paul says, it's like he appeared to me also, for I'm the least of the apostles. Not even worthy to be called an apostle, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. And yet this one, thinking of himself as the most unworthy, becomes, in God's redeeming and powerful sovereign grace, becomes this triumphant champion of the living Lord and a pioneer carrying his good news. Now, I want to think with you and ask you to think, as we close today, about maybe just uh, quick takeaways, four quick takeaways that we could quickly apply to thinking about Theo for ourselves. Four things that we learn about are how we see the value of every individual soul. Luke is writing, and it's even probably providential that we don't know more about Theo than what we can sort of piece together as we've tried to do today because it highlights the fact that every single individual, even those we don't know anything about, are priceless individual souls in the eyes of God. So this communication between Luke and Theo is a model for us to value and see each person in our world and in our sphere as eternally valuable. Secondly, it gives us a model that we see that Theo was beckoning for more. Luke is giving him a massive and incalculably valuable treasure and no doubt, can't you just imagine that when, that when the mailman comes and that Jeep drives away, no, I'm kidding, but when that mailman comes, that Theo opens this scroll and he begins a life of study that reminds us all that the scroll, the seal has been broken on the scroll and the Lord is opening it for us. So Theo's adventure as the recipient of these documents, should help us know how to see the value of every individual soul. It should impact how we study the Word of God. It should impact the energy with which we serve Jesus. You look at that energy in Luke's life in pouring over document after document, interviewing one after another after another in the midst of arduous travels and hard work and long nights. And as well, opposition and adversity and trouble of incalculable amounts. And then, of course, we can leave today thinking, if Luke loved this dude, Theo, so much, to put all of that into these wonderful documents, 
how much more we should serve to strengthen the body of Christ. Would you pray with me now? And I want to pray that somehow we might take from this really obscure individual what we only know for certain is not his wife's name, the color of his tunic, the shape of his home, the influence of his office, the uh, balance in his checking account, his investment portfolio. We don't know anything. What we know is that to somebody that we're pretty uncertain about exactly who he was, God chose through Luke to give the granite rock certainty of the unshakable gospel so that in his life, whatever path he pursued, he would have the treasure that is above all treasures. And that's the reality that in God's living word, we meet unfathomable and unfailing and invincible redeeming love. Now as we pray for a moment, I, there could be somebody here and you may have some, there may be some cavern in your heart, some closet in your life, some place of darkness, some place of hurt and pain. There may be something you bring to this gathering of believers today that, that, that is a, feels almost like a ball and chain around your ankle. Or there may be a, a question mark in your mind. Or there may be some doubt that you feel certain has an answer, but you're troubled about it and it creates angst for you. There could be a relational problem. There could be a, 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 an ongoing conflict that is draining your energy. Whatever you've brought to this place, the Holy Spirit promises in our Father's redeeming grace that He heals the brokenhearted, He brings deliverance to the captives, He sets at liberty those who are bruised, and He gives each of us the capacity to step out in faith and receive from God. God, I pray today that in every heart there will be that, that sweet honey from the rock that you send directly from your throne when we simply say, Lord, I need you. And Lord, we pray that like, like Theo, wherever life took him, we pray that like him, we could treasure this priceless scroll, the living and open word of God for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.